We've been in a series of sermons these last few weeks in the month of November on the church, asking and answering, what is the church? It seems like it's a pretty simple question that shouldn't need a lot of explanation, but in fact, if you you realize that someone can rent a building and someone can spend 15 minutes online and spend $20 with their credit card, they can be ordained, they can grab two pieces of wood, make a cross, slap it to the outside and call it church, that it's worth us asking the question, what is it supposed to be? Is it supposed to be more than a building with a couple of pieces of wood slapped to the outside? Should it be led by someone different or someone more called than a guy that spends 15 minutes online and 20 bucks? What should it look like from week to week? How should it unfold? We've been developing in some ways a definition over these last few weeks that this morning is going to be our final installment on that. In 2009, we spent, I don't know how many Sundays asking and answering this question. I want to say it was two and a half months probably. So if you want to hear the more amplified version, then you can go back and listen in 2009. Today is the the combination, condensing maybe, of five sermons from 2009. (laughs) And I'll explain to you in a moment how this is going to unfold. But you don't have to fret for those of you that are sitting next to little bitty kids. I made good on that last week. I told you that despite the fact that it's multiple sermons, that we got out of there unscathed and um, uh, without um, a, a, a mega marathon sermon. To this point, we've defined the church as an accountable people who are led and leadable, taught and teachable, loved and loving. And this morning, we're landing the plane with baptized and supping. A baptized and supping people. We're going to spend the first few minutes of our morning Getting educated, I says, let me, let me figure out how to phrase this. Helping parachuters see the big picture, and I'll explain that in a minute, by looking at a number of, picture, a number of passages in our Old Testament and then a handful of passages in our New. The Old Testament passages, in case you want to jot these down, are Genesis 1, great place to start. Surprising how often we've been going to Genesis 1 talking about the church, if you've been paying attention these last few weeks. Genesis 8. Exodus 14, and then a few passages in John, John 6, John 11, and John 21. And then the second half of the sermon, we're going to be looking at baptism and supping as being more than ceremony and more than ritual. And there are a couple of passages I'll have you turn to in that portion of the sermon. But the first portion of the sermon, in some ways, is a... um, a survey, if you will, a survey of passages and stories and accounts that you have been, may, maybe have been reading your entire life, but you've never seen things together. I'll confess to you, I told you how the sermon was going to unfold. I worked right up until yesterday after, afternoon on the sermon, taking five sermons and condensing them into one by just cutting out lots of stuff. Well, I trashed that yesterday afternoon based on a conversation that Christy and I were having coming back from Austin over the holidays. She mentioned something about baptism being a call to fidelity, and that led me on a little journey that started late yesterday afternoon, and that's why I feel like the plane is just sort of pieced together, because normally I have more time with a sermon than I've had starting at late yesterday afternoon. Gracious sakes alive, it's like flying for the first time. So hopefully you'll be gracious with me as we consider something that came from a conversation with Christy that's a whole different approach 
to baptism and supper. That's what I'm kind of excited about, despite the fact that it's a scary plane. It's going to be, I think, a new approach to you, for you. Now, let me explain the parachuting. If you're in Genesis chapter 1, you can just go ahead and be ready there. Parachuters jump into a field or a theater, if it's some sort of war context. They jump into a context where they need to get some information to understand what happened before they got there. The worst thing that can happen to a parachuter is if they land on the ground and they spend a few minutes on the ground and they think they have it figured out. They may know nothing more than cardinal direction if they pull out their compass. They don't know what happened before they got there unless they're doing some research. So a wise parachuter, if, and I'm talking military-type context, not just people that just go parachuting. <laughs> In a military context, you've got to get the information of what happened before you got there. Now, the problem for us is chronologically, we're parachuters. We've parachuted into 2014. Now, obviously, most of us, if not all of us in this room in the years prior to 2014 were actually parachute dates. Mine was 1967. Okay, so we parachuted into a context, and we can be chronological snobs is what C.S. Lewis said we can be guilty of, where we think we've got it all figured out. We parachute into 2014, and we think everybody else before us is stupid, but we're the brightest and the best. We don't want to be that. Okay, And we also don't want to be those who parachute into the New Testament or parachute into a, a, a topic like baptism and supper, without finding out what happened before we got there. If we were to parachute into the Jordan River, we might see John the Bee looking all manly, baptizing people left and right. We might watch him for a few days, a few hours, and think we understand baptism. But we may really, at that point, likely, unless we've done our research, have no real clue what's actually taking place. So we want to be educated parachuters today. We can't avoid being a parachuter, but we can be wise educated uh, parachuters that are willing to do the work to find out what happened before our baptisms, before the supper that we're going to take today that will help give us perspective to what we're doing as a people. So we're starting in the very beginning. I'm going to show you in these next few minutes that God baptizes and feeds his people. God baptizes and he feeds his people. Now, it's going to be a little blurry in the beginning, but it's going to come into focus over the course of this survey. So here's the first example. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. Okay, now I'm going to give you a little data point that's going to come into play later. He's, what he's doing here is he's separating oceans or seas from dry land. Now, at the very end of the, our Bibles, in Revelation chapter 21, God tells us that the new heavens and new earth will have no seas. It's the first couple of verses in chapter 21. If you want to turn there, you can look at it. There, the seas will be no more. Keep that in mind as this morning develops because you'll sort of, that'll come into focus for you later. But here we see on creation day, God's separating the waters from the dry land, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Okay? Familiar passage, familiar creation day. He separates the waters from the seas. Let's see what happens just a couple days later, looking over at verse 26. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, now, so far, I want you to pay attention to this. This is really pretty easy at this point. God separates the dry land he calls earth from the waters that he calls seas. And then later, a couple days later, he makes man. And he plants man on the dry land. Now, kids... I know we have our little kids in here. I want you all to think about this for a moment. That's a good thing. Kids, you might be really good swimmers. Okay, you might, adults, you might fancy yourself a good swimmer. But thankfully, you weren't planted in the middle of the ocean. God planted man on dry ground. That's a good thing because ultimately we need to consider the seas as a place that's not sustainable. We need some sort of artificial assistance for our lives to be sustained in the middle of the ocean. The land, on the other hand, is full of plants and critters and provision and life for man. That's where God planted man on the dry ground. And look what he does next in this next verse. And God said, Behold, newly created man, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, and every tree with seeds in its fruit, or seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. All right, I'm going to create you, I'm going to plant you on dry ground, and then I'm going to give you some grub. Okay, just look at basic movement right there. Creation planted on dry ground, now let me feed you. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God creates man on the newly separated dry ground. He puts him on that dry ground And then he feeds this new creation because that's what God does. You're going to hear that over and over this morning. Because that's what God does. Now, turn to Genesis chapter 8. Next little glimpse of our survey. For a little context, I'm going to read some passages in chapter 7. But we're going to focus primarily on what happens in chapter 8. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to read some excerpts. Chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heavens were open, And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and three wives, or three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. 
Now the flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. It's a great picture of the rest of life not being sustained in what's about to, be, about to unfold. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the earth. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. It's not a sustainable place. You don't want to be planted in the middle of the ocean. This is a newly formed worldwide ocean at this point, and mankind is not faring well there. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And watch what happens next. But God remembered Noah and all beasts and the livestock that were with him on the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Look at verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the face of the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And then God said to Noah, go out from the ark. You and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that's with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. There's this recreation taking place. And Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Noah and his family passed through the watery ordeal. And here they land, as God seems to do with his people, on dry ground. Now watch what happens next in the next chapter. Chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And this recreation, this, this cultural mandate is recast. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Here God delivers his people through the watery ordeal and plants this new recreation on dry ground. And then what does he do next? He feeds them. Because that's what God does. Turn to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. Beginning in verse 10. 
If you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, we're fast-forwarding. We don't know how many thousands of years at this point, but we're fast-forwarding to Exodus after the nation of Israel has spent 400 years in Egypt in slavery. And here God has delivered them through the mighty acts of judgment called the plagues. And here we fast forward to Pharaoh's armies chasing them down. And they're facing a body of water called the Red Sea. Look at chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of the Lord, or the people of Israel, lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us up out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Look at verse 19. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Moses and the nation of Israel here again pass through the watery ordeal and come out the other side dry and toasty. And a new creation here is born through the fiery furnace of affliction in Egypt, passing through the waters of the Red Sea. And then if in keeping with our past passages, we should be looking for some food. We should be looking for some drink. And we can look right to the next chapter and look at chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, 
And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the distress on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where, they were, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now, if you're paying attention, you're saying, okay, well, there's some water. Where's the food? Look at the next heading right below you in chapter 16. It's beautiful when you start to look for these things that take place together over and over and over through our scriptures. In chapter 16 is the story of bread and meat. Look at verse 12 of chapter 16. I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. God delivers his people through the watery ordeal, and then he feeds them because that's what God does. Between yesterday and this morning, I've been thinking of other examples, other passages in the Old Testament I'm not going to go to, but if you really spend some time thinking about our storyline in the Bible, thinking about other passages, you can connect some other dots here. Forty years later, if you know what happened, they crossed the Jordan on dry ground, And as the passage goes in the book of Joshua, the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. They cross the Jordan, the next watery ordeal, on dry ground, and they step off into this land that God has provided for them that is full of milk and honey. There was no longer any manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year because God delivers his people, and then he feeds them. Another example I was thinking about this morning early, I was thinking about the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. These Ezra and Nehemiah are called back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the the wall that goes around the temple after the Babylonian exile. Listen to this little excerpt from Nehemiah chapter 8. This is after the wall has been rebuilt. This is after the temple has been rebuilt. This is after the watery ordeal, we could call it, of exile in Babylon. This unsustainable, dark environment of exile. After all that, Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord, or the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. Don't be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because that because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Here they are after the ordeal of exile. God is providing food and drink for them because that's what he does. He delivers and then he provides. Now turn to John chapter 6. We're going to move all the way over to the New Testament. There's a the temptation to think that 
These are just Old Testament images, but if you start to pay attention in the Gospels, you can start to see some of these things come to life. This picture of God baptizing and God feeding his people. Why, after all, would Jesus show up and do something totally different than what the Father has done for the past however many thousand years? He's going to show up and move just in the character of his Father because he is God the Son. So look at these pictures. John chapter 6 is a story of Jesus feeding the multitudes. You can read the heading right there in the beginning of chapter 6. He feeds the multitudes. There's a temptation here for a moment to think things are out of order. Where's the watery ordeal? Look in verse 16 of chapter 6. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Here Jesus feeds the multitudes, and then he delivers his people through the watery ordeal and the tempest. The other gospel accounts of this night tell us that it was a frightful night. This passage here in John doesn't really do justice to what the other gospels tell us about the tempest that they were delivered through that night. And add the fear of the tempest to they see Jesus walking on the water and they think it's a ghost. And here Jesus shows up, gets in the boat, and they're delivered through the watery ordeal. Now, there's the potential to see this food that takes place before and think it's out of order, but what we need to pay attention to is what takes place after this. Look at chapter 6, beginning in verse 50. Jesus is teaching the multitudes the next day, and his disciples, who've just been delivered through the watery ordeal, must have been paying very close attention. Hopefully they were, and hopefully we are today. Jesus says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. He's not talking about what he fed the multitudes with the day before. He's talking about something new and something better. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Look at verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food. Now I'm feeding you. You thought you ate the day before, but now I'm feeding you with true food. And my blood is true drink. Now you're getting something to drink. You thought you had something the day before, but now you're getting real nourishment. And Jesus is saying, I am that nourishment. Disciples, I've just delivered you through the watery ordeal. Now it's time to eat. And I'm your meal, is what he's saying. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, here's the problem. This, thus far, we've sort of developed this picture of God baptizing and feeding his people. The problem at this point in the storyline is that some of the people weren't happy with that meal. They wanted more of the meal that they had had the day before. Give us some more stuff, 
You think about this health and wealth message that people preach today. That's just a version of what the people wanted that day. Fill our bellies because our bellies are our God's. And Jesus is saying, I'm your nourishment now. And here's how some of them responded in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. No thanks. I'd rather have some food because you're not as good to me as food. So he turns to his disciples and he says this. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the real food. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You're the meal that we want. You've delivered us through the watery ordeal. Now we want to eat and we only want you. It's a beautiful picture that we'll come back to later. God delivers his people through the tempest. And then he feeds them because that's what God does. Look at John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is a familiar passage. If you've been part of Crosspoint for a period of time, we spent a long time in the chapter John 11 considering this resurrection of Lazarus. A few things that takes place here is Lazarus dies and he's stone cold dead. I mean, he's not like in a coma or something like that. He's dead and stinketh according to the King James Version. The sisters said, no, we can't remove the stone because surely he stinketh. I mean, he's dead, dead, dead. And Jesus shows up and he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, though he be smack dab in the middle of this abyss of the sea, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I told you that picture of the sea, of the new creation, the new heavens and new earth having no sea. It's connected to pictures like this because the sea in our scriptures is oftentimes a picture of death. In some ways, Lazarus has been in the depths of the sea, yet Jesus says, take away the stone in verse 39. And then in verse 43, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come to shore. Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. A beautiful picture of a sort of watery ordeal in death. And Jesus draws him through that ordeal to life. And then where do you see him next? Look in chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and newly resurrected, dragged from the depths, Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Yet another picture of God's people being delivered through the ordeal of certain death and then dining with his deliverer because that's what God does. One last picture that's just too sweet to pass up. At the end of John in chapter 21, Let's look there. You may remember how the story goes. Peter is sort of disheartened. He hasn't been restored at this point. He's denied Christ three times. He's seen the risen Lord, but he hasn't been restored yet. Things are not quite right between him and Jesus. And what does he do? He says, I'm going fishing. I'm going to go back to my old life of fishing. That's what he was before he was called. 
And look here in chapter 21, verse 3. Simon Peter said to the other disciples, I'm going fishing. And ironically, they say the same thing. A lot of them were fishermen as well. We're going to go back to our old life. Jesus was dead. He's crucified. Now he's resurrected. But we haven't figured this thing out. So let's just go ahead and go back to our old life and go fishing. They went out and got in the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. The beautiful picture of a watery ordeal. For anybody that fishes, you know that's an ordeal. If you fish all night and you haven't caught a thing, that's an ordeal. And I'm going to call that a watery ordeal. I'm just looking at it saying, I can't imagine the despair this guy felt over that night. He couldn't medicate even with catching a fish or two. Think about that. He spends a whole night with a big zero And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. Can't imagine it wasn't emphatic, no. They didn't recognize who it was just yet. Who's this joker? Of course we have no fish. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. They come to shore later, with the, drag all these fish ashore. P- Simon Peter swims ashore because he can't wait for the boat to come ashore. And then in verse 9, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And in verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. I'm going to draw you out of the watery ordeal of going back to your old life, a dark night with zero fish. And I'm going to bring you ashore and I'm going to feed you because that's what God does. Man, what a beautiful picture. We see it over and over again. We think about Paul's shipwrecks. We think of other examples in the Bible where God delivers his people through the watery ordeal. If you're paying attention, you're likely going to see some food nearby because that's what God does. God baptizes and he feeds his people. I was thinking about, man, we can get into trying to figure out what is baptism and what is the supper and what role does the Lord have in all that and how, what part are we taking place and all these weird questions. Instead of just asking the question, well, what does a duck do? Well, he quacks. What does God do? Well, he baptizes his people. And what do his people do? Well, we eat what he provides us. A duck quacks and his people eat and his people are baptized. I don't know what a fox says yet, but I know that a duck quacks and I know that his people are baptized because God's doing it. Delivered through the watery ordeal. And then what do we do? We eat. We eat. Man, could baptism and supper be any more beautiful and simple than that? He's delivered us through the watery ordeal of death. Raised like Lazarus from that dark night. And what are we doing when we take the supper each week? We're reclining at table with our Lord. Man. The second part of the sermon is going to focus on what baptism and supper should leave us with, what we should do with baptism and supper. Is it something more than just a nifty connection between his many examples of delivering his people to a watery ordeal and then feeding us? Should it be more than that? Let's start with baptism. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I have three passages I want you to look at in these next few minutes, and then we're going to have our supper together. 1 Peter chapter 3. Romans chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians 10. Baptism is more than symbol and ceremony. For me, as a Southern Baptist growing up my whole life, baptism has 
only ever been, at least the way I've been taught, a picture of what God has done for us. Just a symbol, almost like a flannel graph. Some of y'all that remember back to your, your kindergarten years, you know, where they, I don't know how flannel sticks to flannel, but it does. And, you know, and here's what the lambs do, and here's what the shepherd does, you know, that flannel graph. It's more than a flannel graph. Baptism, there's something profound taking place in baptism. It's more than a nifty picture. Something significant is taking place. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Okay, the familiar realities there, that Jesus has died for us, being put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the spirit, that he died for the unrighteous. He suffered for our sins once and for all. Now, there's this sort of weird passage in there that comes up next that talks about him going to preach to those in prison that people have been debating about for ages. And I'm not even going to touch it. I'm going to get to what's being said next. It's very clear. I'm going to read it, but I'm not going to talk about it. He's made alive in the flesh. He's put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, a passage we looked at this morning. Okay, this is going to be a baptism connection. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism which corresponds to this. Now, in my Bibles, if you write in your Bible, I, have it, I write in mine. I mean, I use them up, and then I'll get a new Bible because I've just marked it up so much. If you ever write in your Bible, and this is a great occasion to write in your Bible, to draw an arrow from this to Noah because that's the connection that's being made. Baptism corresponds to what happened to Noah and those that were on the ark with him, that remnant that was preserved through the watery ordeal. Baptism, which corresponds to Noah and his story, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If baptism were just a big tank of water and just you getting in it and getting out, then nothing really is going to happen. You're not even going to be any cleaner. There's no detergent. There's no soap in it. It's just water. But something profound happens in a baptism when someone is making an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's like many of you are married. It's like on your wedding day when you stepped into a building and you looked at a woman or gal, you looked at a man and you said, I do. That's what's taking place in a baptism. You're making an appeal to God for a good conscience through the finished work of Jesus Christ. You're saying, I am in desperate need of someone to represent me because I am crossways with my creator. And my only representative is Jesus in his perfection and his perfect work. And by faith, I am reaching out and apprehending that. By faith, I am trusting in him and what he has done. And I'm making an appeal to you for a good conscience through what he has done. That's where baptism becomes something that saves you. Baptism by itself, getting in a little pool of water, that doesn't do anything for you. It gets you wet. But if baptism is caught up with this faith expression then it is a profound moment where you are making an appeal to God for a good conscience. It is the beginnings of a marriage. You may have loved God beforehand. Some of you that think, man, I'm not baptized yet, but I love God desperately and I feel like we're in relationship. You're dating. You're dating. It's beautiful. You love each other. That's awesome. But the wedding day is the day that you say, I do. 
I make an appeal to you for a good conscience through the finished work of Jesus Christ. I do. I will be yours. I am yours and you are mine. It's what a profound moment it is. It's more than a ceremony. It is an appeal to God for a good conscience. And God recognizes it. I want you to understand God recognizes it. That might be difficult for a moment because you might think, well, this is a physical thing and God deals with spiritual matters. So he deals with the spiritual matters of the heart and that physical thing, well, that's physical. That's Gnostic, first of all. You're separating the physical from the spiritual. They're intertwined. And in that moment, if it is a faith expression, then God recognizes it. Matthew 18 tells us what God, what is bound on earth is bound in heaven. How many of you show up at a wedding ceremony and walk out of there saying, ah, they're not really married. (laughs) Ah, God doesn't really recognize it. You walk out of there assuming that God in the high courts of heaven says, Bill and Sally are now one because you showed up. It's more than a ceremony. It is the beginning of a covenant, and that's what takes place in a baptism ceremony. Covenant, sign, is what it is. It is a sign of a covenant that you have entered into with the living God as you have made an appeal to him for a good conscience. It is so much more than symbol, so much more than flannel graph, so much more than even ceremony. The real cool thing is when you rightly handle that and you understand how profound it is, it becomes a wonderful instrument for you. Parents, it becomes a wonderful instrument for you as you're raising your children. Adults, it becomes a wonderful instrument for you as you remember, wait a second, I need to remember my baptism. It's an instrument that God used to call for fidelity in different churches that he wrote to, the Romans, the Roman church and the Corinthian church. Turn to Romans chapter 6. I'm going to show you what this looks like. I'm going to read a passage to you as you're turning there just because it's too good to, to pass up on. I'm going to save your energy, though, and um, we'll just look at the Romans passage. But the other passage in Romans chapter 6, listen to this. Paul is appealing to the Corinthian church to not have lawsuits between believers. Don't take those things, um, those legal issues between two brothers into unbelieving courts. Okay, he's making this appeal to them. And then he goes on to say, as he's making this appeal... Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, Corinthian church. You used to be these people who were doing these things by practice. You were practitioners of adultery and homosexuality and theft and greed, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. If it makes it, if it's more helpful to you to understand what's being, what's taking place here, but you made an appeal to God for a clean conscience through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Such were some of you, but you have been baptized. That's not who you are anymore. That's the appeal that Paul is making for fidelity in the Corinthian church. Romans 6 is another example of this. I'm going to say some more here in a moment when we talk about the supper. 
it occurs to me how often when we're talking about baptism or we're talking about supper, that the focus of what we talk about is the fact that our sins are forgiven. Is that true? Absolutely. Is that worth focusing on? Absolutely. Are we wrong to enjoy that? No, we're not wrong to enjoy that. But that's not all it is. Baptism is a beginning of a covenant relationship. It is a time to celebrate, a time to be dedicated, a time to be engaged all in with our God. It's not just a time to celebrate that our sins are covered. I'll talk about this more in a moment. Look at this passage in Romans 6. What shall we say then, beginning in verse 1? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, here new creation, delivered through the watery ordeal, New creation, Noah. New creation, Israel, after you've crossed through the Red Sea. That's where newness of life comes in. You are a new creation after you have been delivered through the watery ordeal. So verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You shouldn't be enslaved to sin anymore because you've been delivered from that is the point that he makes. Remember your baptism. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. What a wonderful thing, this baptism. Now, let me, let me, let me address what might be an objection for somebody that's really paid attention to how God uses some symbolism in our Bibles. In the New Testament, there are places where circumcision is used symbolically. Like a circumcision of the heart, for example. He's talking about something that takes place spiritually and that involves no knife. Right? He's talking, circumcision of the heart takes place. So you become an Israelite through a circumcision of the heart. And that's not made with human hands. Okay? He's talking symbolically about circumcision. There's no real development in our New Testament about baptism being a symbolic event. There's no passages that, that talk about uh, baptism of the heart. There's no passages that talk about a waterless baptism. Baptism is not figurative in our New Testaments. There are places where circumcision is, but baptism, it talks to, it, apparently, if we're reading it without trying to stick something in it, it's talking about real water, maybe a real water trough. <laughs> with real people watching, with a real confession in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that God shows up and something profound happens. And it's profound enough that it should be a piton in the granite wall for us forevermore that I want to obey him. I want to be all in with him because of my baptism. He's delivered me through the watery ordeal. It is that profound. It's not a cutesy little event where little Sally, the six-year-old, gets baptized. It is Sally, the six-year-old, who is now married to God. She said, I do. Little Sally steps out, surviving the watery ordeal, and she's now married to her God. And she is with us, the bride of Christ. What a profound event. Baptism, it should be 
something that is a helpful appeal for us. As we urge one another, we've been talking about that we are an accountable people. We're not meddlers, but we are our brother's keeper. Then maybe part of that conversation is, dude, let me, let me just encourage you. Remember your baptism here. Remember the watery ordeal of death that you were delivered from. You were called from death to life. Remember that he did that and don't walk in this any longer. Repent of this. Let me help you with this. Let me come alongside you and help you walk rightly, appropriately, given your baptism. In 2009, I had just baptized Daniel, and I had in my notes, Daniel, remember your baptism. It's an appeal. It was when you made an appeal to God for a clean conscience. It was when you were delivered from death to life. You were delivered through the tempest to life. Baptism is more than symbol and ceremony. And supper is more than symbol and ceremony. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. This is where we're going to land. And this is where we're going to land for getting our, our, our elements distributed. 1 Corinthians 10. <clears throat> I mentioned this with baptism a moment ago, that sometimes we can focus on baptism being a washing away of your sin. It is that. Is that a wrong thing to focus on? Absolutely not. It's a good thing. I love it. How often on our supper, though, do we focus on remember the price paid for your sins? It's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing that we focus on that. But that's not all it is. If it were, it would be like you showing up to a wedding ceremony and hearing the preacher or hearing in the vows where the husband and wife are talking to me. Now, you're going to forgive me if I cheat on you, right? The, the pastor turning to wife. Okay, you're going to forgive him if he cheats on you, right? Would that sort of put a damper on the ceremony? Anybody else thinking that would be sort of like, oh, this is supposed to be a time where we are enjoying the, the dedication of the moment, the commitment of the moment. We're not assuming the worst in that moment. What I'm appealing to you to do is to consider that some of these suppers are yes, I'm thankful that I am washed in the blood of the Lamb. I am thankful that I am forgiven of my sins, and I needed to be reminded of that today. But other times, it is a time where you are eating with your God like the newly married, like that supper that you had, that meal that you had after your ceremony where you're celebrating your new marriage, and you're all in. You're not expecting the worst. You're not even assuming the worst. You're wholeheartedly His. That's the problem of what's being dealt with here in 1 Corinthians. It's appropriately here in one of the letters to the Corinthian church because the Corinthians had many lovers. I'll put it to you that way. You got kids in here. It's about as graphic as I'm going to get. Many loves other than God. Listen to what takes place here in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. In case you were thinking like, ah, you know, I think it's a little bit of a stretch seeing baptism and food together. Paul sees them together. He says Corinthians. Now that's sort of interesting there that he's saying Corinthians, remember your fathers. Corinthians are a bunch of Gentiles. Remember your Israelite fathers. That by covenant, now that's your, your fathers. 
Remember, our all, fa- all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, i.e. delivered through the watery ordeal. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. To say spiritual food doesn't mean metaphorical food. Spiritual food means God-prepared food. God-delivered food. Food that fell from the sky. Okay? And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Now, first of all, in these first four verses, all were delivered through the watery ordeal, and all ate the same food that was provided for them. Okay? God delivers his people through the watery ordeal, and then he feeds them. That takes place here. But in verse 5, nevertheless... This is to the Corinthian church, but it's to us as well. Because we can be baptized and we can sup, but there may be a nevertheless for us. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we, may not, we might not desire evil as they did. I've got to believe that if Paul is writing to the Corinthian church about this, that there's a potential for us to desire evil just like the Israelites did, then I've got to believe this is a potential for us as well. That we could desire evil too. Having been baptized, having delivered through the watery ordeal, having eaten the spiritual food week after week, that we too could desire evil like the Israelites. And here's how they desired evil. This is going to get real personal in a moment. I want you to just really pay close attention. You've done the work of really getting the goods at this point. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Why was he, what, why the nevertheless? Because they were idolaters. As it is re- written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Apparently, they had more than one table. Apparently, they ate at the table of provision of the Lord, but yet they rose up to play to eat at other tables. And three of those tables are mentioned in the next few verses. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. That's one table. As some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test. That's another table, table of testing the Lord through quarreling was what's behind that. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's a third table. The table of sexual immorality, the table of grumbling, the table of quarreling. Now look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them, Corinthian church, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, Corinthian church, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now I'm going to just realize it was written down for the Corinthian church so that they would benefit, so they would not fall by the same sort of evil that the Israelites were falling to or fell to. But we have a double layer of blessing. These things were recorded for the Corinthian church, and they were also recorded about the Corinthian church for us. We've got two layers here, two layers of help that we can look at, and we can realize, oh, if they can so easily migrate to these tables, how easily can we migrate? But we should take heed lest we fall. How many of us never give a thought about the tables, the other tables of idolatry that we may be eating at. I mean, they could be right here. They could be these, sexual immorality. It could be quarreling. It could be grumbling. You think church folk don't do that? Do you? 
Every week we enjoy that the Lord's Supper is a covering for your sin, but it's so much more than that. It is a call to fidelity. It is a call to not eat at these other tables. Let's keep reading. Let's see what happens. These things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. If you don't think there's a potential for you to eat at other tables, then you're going to fall. Man, we're surrounded by tables. Plenty of other places to eat. Plenty of other opportunities. Verse 14, he makes the appeal. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Some versions of idolatry for us, they could be sexually immoral, immorality. They could be grumbling, could be quarreling. They could be the table of bitterness. That happens in the church. That happens to people that have been delivered through the watery ordeal. You think it doesn't happen? Stick around a little while. You're either going to be the source of it or you're going to hear it. It's sad, but it does. But it shouldn't. There are other tables that they're eating at that you could eat at. The table of bitterness could be the table of greed. Christians, even having been delivered, having been baptized, having, been, having eating, eaten a provided meal, can fall right back into a table of greed. This, this, is gonna be, this ought to be just off limits a few days after Thanksgiving. How about the table of gluttony? How about it? We don't talk about that in church very much. It's a respectable sin. Right? If there is such a thing. What about the table of gluttony where we, and I say, I can, I can talk about this because I've struggled with this my entire life. Where I run to a table of food, I mean literal physical food, when I ought to be running to Christ. Is there anything wrong with food? Absolutely not. Not anything wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with any of these things, but when you are looking to these things for your satisfaction, then it has become an idol. When you're going to them as your source to medicate, then it's become an idol. Bitterness, greed, gluttony. How about the table of divisiveness or the table of rebellion? I'm not going to follow any leadership. Talk to the hand. You're eating at another table. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to a sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? That word participation is the Greek word koinonia, and it means fellowship. When we take this supper, we are fellowshipping with the blood of Christ. It's not just something that we're doing. It is, actually, it is a faith interaction with our Savior. We are fellowshipping with the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation and a fellowship in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. He's calling them to fidelity. He's calling a bunch of Corinthians that have many lovers. Read both letters. Anybody wants to talk about anything possibly wrong that could go possibly wrong in the church, read the first or the, our two letters of the, the, to the church of Corinth. And he's calling them to fidelity. And the way his appeal is he's calling them to fidelity is that meal right there. One meal of one Lord, a fellowship with one Lord. We shouldn't be running to all these other tables. We shouldn't be seeking satisfaction and identity and comfort 
from all these other tables. In fact, we should be fleeing from it. The word flee tells me those things are hunting us down. Like he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That tells me it's something that's hunting you. Here, eat me. I'll make you feel better. I'll give you identity. I'll make you happy. All these promises this world's table has to offer, yet they don't, they don't make good on these promises. I jotted down a few passages that I was thinking about, about these, this table of the world. Hosea 4.10, they shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they've forsaken the Lord to cherish. Those tables don't deliver. But man, they're hunting us down. We got to flee from them. They're hunting us down. How often do we talk about this in the supper? Is an appeal to fidelity, where we are all in and only to this one table and this one meal. Micah 6 14, you shall eat but not be satisfied. Run to the table of food, gluttons. I'll run with you. And I'm gonna tell you right now, it is a miserable table. Over and over again, experiencing a full belly and not be satisfied. We have those daily reminders. Every single one of us have those daily reminders that those tables don't deliver. Only this one table of the Lord truly delivers. And we are to be dedicated to this table. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The appeal for the Corinthian church that's written down for their help, that's written down in double layer for our help, is that this supper should be a weekly call to be all in, to race to one table. I need that supper. I need that supper. That one supper matters that much. It's God's provision for me. The spirit of a wedding is not assuming the worst. It's a spirit of devotion, a spirit of commitment, a spirit of dedication. And this morning, as we take the supper, I want that to be our spirit. I'm all in, Lord. I'm all in, groom. I am yours and you are mine. What other tables I've been eating at, I pray that you would give me a view to. Whatever else I might be running to for identity, for meaning, for medication. Lord, please put those things in perspective. I want to repent of those right now. And I want to only run to your table. I want that to be the only table that I really take nourishment from. Can this supper be that for you right now? Can it be a call to fidelity? It needs to be. I need that. Man, I can run to the other tables with the best of them. Let me pray as we distribute the elements. Lord, I needed this call to fidelity of baptism and supper. I needed the reminder that I need to take heed lest I fall. I needed to remember how easily I can migrate and gravitate toward these other places to find nourishment and identity and even purpose. 
God, I pray that you would call those things to my recollection and my understanding where I see those things. And I pray that for this people as well, that we can see those ways that we may be eating from other tables. God, I pray that we can, as we remember our baptism this morning for those of us that have been baptized, and as we take this supper this morning, that it will be a meal of fidelity. As we are remembering our covenant with you, being delivered through the ordeal of death and being fed so amply. God, we love you. And we're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's distribute the elements.